good to see you all, whether you're here, whether you're at home. It's amazing to see you as well. Thank you so much for being a part of Life Center. And we've, uh, when it comes to rebuilding, which is our theme this year, Build Your House, we've spent the last six weeks uh, placing down the presence brick, if you will. And we're going to spend the next week, six weeks together talking about position. Everyone say position. Feels good, Doyen, doesn't it, when you do that? And they shout back. It feels terrible when you do that and nothing. It's just dead silence. And you're like, wow, that hurt. If you're, on, if you're at home, you can just write position in the chat. Just kind of wake yourself up. It's good. So we're going to talk about who we are in Christ uh, for the next six weeks together. And it's vital. Uh, it's vital in particular in the season in which we find ourselves living in. So I want to start with two opening questions. And they're rhetorical questions, so don't shout out the answers because we'll be doing it all day. The first question is, uh, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world today? And the second question is, how do we fix it? If you ask different people that question, you're going to get a lot of different perspectives. You're going to hear a lot of different positional statements. If you ask a political party, they're going to pull you to their side. And we are now living in a very polarized country. In church, polarization only ends in one place, which is absolute division. We need to decide not are we in it, but are we of it? Is there a different way that Jesus wants us to live in the world today? And so today, whether you are atheist, agnostic, Muslim, Christian, or consider yourself spiritual, <laughs> we all have different positions on things. And when discussing our various positions, we quickly pivot to right and wrong. And in life, of course, there's good and there's evil. There is right and there is wrong. I'm not saying there isn't. There's truth and there's lies. But how many of you know that sometimes we can be both right and destructive? We can, in our lives, we can have the right position on something, but our posture is entirely unhealthy at worst, or again, it's destructive, or unhealthy at best, or destructive, I think, at worst. Oftentimes when you read the scriptures, you see that the Pharisees, they weren't wrong with the what. They weren't wrong on how they were interpreting the law or how they were speaking about the law. They were wrong on the why. They missed the why. The heart and the motive wasn't love. The posture wasn't love. It wasn't, it was more be like me, not we all need to be transformed to look like someone different. For us as followers of Christ, that's Jesus. So I often wonder if Jesus was asked those opening two questions, what's wrong with the world? And how do you fix it? How would he respond? Well, the beautiful thing is we don't actually have to wonder about it because he actually told us precisely from God's perspective what is wrong with the world and how we fix it. For Jesus, answering these two questions, for him, the answer actually is positional, not just perspective-based. It is your position with God, it is my position with God that is of utmost importance. And for Jesus, there are only two positions that humanity experiences before God. And we want to jump again right away to, well, it's right or it's wrong. And yes, there's right and wrong, but that's actually not where Jesus starts. Jesus actually starts with humanity looking and saying there's only two positions. It's either you're lost or you're found. And from our lostness or our foundness is sort of how we live our lives. I know those aren't really words, so bear with me. 
Again, if we asked what is wrong with the world today, I think Jesus would take us to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. And he would show us that God who, takes, who looks at chaos, God is a God who takes chaos and he begins to make order. And we see that in Genesis chapter 1, that we see the heart of God that is good. And everything he creates is good. And when he creates humanity, he says it's very, very good. It's a beautiful, beautiful part of the story that we see that what God creates and how we are created to be in fellowship, in relationship. Positionally, we were created to be with God and God with us fully. This is what we see in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 2, we can see that God created work. And I want you to know that as much as you may not like work, work was created before sin. Work is not sin. Work actually gives our lives purpose and meaning and value. There is something about us created in the image of God that we love to small c create. We love to make a difference. We love to use our hands, our minds, our hearts to make a difference. Work is good. It creates meaning in our lives. It, we see in Genesis chapter 2 that men and women are equally co-image bearers of God. That men and women reflect the nature and the fullness of who God is. But then Jesus would also take us to Genesis chapter 3 that shows us that there wasn't only goodness in the world. Evil is also present in the world. It's obviously, evil is oftentimes just a perversion of that which is good. Its sole intent was to disrupt our positional relationship with God. And if God takes chaos and makes order, here's what I want you to know, that Satan takes order and makes chaos. He's the antithesis of God. M. Scott Peck says it this way, that the devil is a spirit of unreality, which means that he is the full embodiment of deception. Jesus said it himself. He is the father of lies. And what are lies? They are really packets of unreality that we believe is true. You know, if I delude myself into believing that I can step off this stage and that gravity will have no effect on me, how many of you know, I'm not going to try it, how many of you know if I did try it, I would be confronted that my beliefs are false. And I would be confronted with truth, which is reality. I'm going to hit the ground. Well, this happens in a lot of different areas of our lives. And we see it in Genesis chapter 3 as Adam and Eve... Adam, by the way, his name is translated human, and Eve means life. And I don't know if you've read the Bible, but there's no other Adams and there's no other Eves. And so it's a story about human life, how we exchange the truth of what we have positionally with God, and we buy into a lie. And as a result of sin entering the world, then there is nakedness and shame. And it's an amazing story. And Adam and Eve, the moment they sin, they do something that is interesting. Genesis chapter 3 shows us that the moment they sin, coming on the heels of sin is the very first instance of religion that you see in the Bible. No, it's not organized, but it's there. Adam and Eve take for themselves and they try to cover themselves before God. They take fig leaves and they sew them together and they hide themselves. It is man-made effort to cover what has now been exposed. It's the first instance of religion you see because religion is always our effort to earn what only God can do. If you keep reading the story in Genesis chapter 3, you're going to see a foreshadow 
of Jesus who's going to come a lot of years later. Behold, the Lamb of God is going to take away the sin of the world. Because what you see in Genesis chapter 3 is that fig leaves don't cover it for God. God actually takes the life of an innocent animal to clothe and cover Adam and Eve. Here's what we need to understand is that we as humans always minimize the positional damage that sin does. We think leaves will cover it, and God shows us, no, 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 no. It's much more costly than that, and it's not only costly for you that sin never stays in its place. It infects those around us. Because sin in my life or yours is always an issue of trust, isn't it? Do I trust God or do I believe a lie? And this is positional. How many of you know that Jesus taught us to beware of false prophets? He did. But do you know that Jesus also taught us to be aware of false discipleship? Here's what he said. It's a quick little story in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So yeah, false prophets is an important thing. False preachers and teachers, sure. But beloved... Also be careful about false discipleship that promises you a gospel of everything that costs you absolutely nothing. That promises you that all you have to do is pray a prayer and that you never after that moment have to see any transformation in your heart or in your life. I'm not trying to sow insecurity into your relationship with Jesus because I know the enemy does that enough. But I do know this, that saying a prayer doesn't always reveal a repentant heart. Sometimes they can just be words. Anybody here in your life ever say these words before from your lips, but it took a while to get to your heart? I'm sorry. It's never a bad thing to say I'm sorry. It's never a bad thing to start saying it. Sometimes, though, we can get ourselves into places where we say the word, I forgive you. And we know it's the right thing to do, but it takes a while for that forgiveness to actually get a hold of our hearts. And so some people can say prayers or they can pray prayers, but they're just words. And others, like the story that we just saw, there can be a moment in their life where Jesus changes the entire direction of their hearts and lives. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 2, I've, I've preached this a lot. This is one of my favorite, favorite themes to dig into. So if you, as we're going through this now in the next few minutes, if you're like, I think, I think I've heard this message before. Oh, you haven't just heard it before. You've probably heard it like a hundred times over before. But it's important to remind ourselves of it. At least it is for me. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives. Everyone say receives. Again, you can type it in the chat. If those of you at home, write the word Receives. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, it would be great if we'd be able to read the, the text in the original language because the word receives is actually a really, really important word in this story. The tax collectors and sinners who were the antithesis of Jesus, in other words, they were everything that Jesus wasn't. Jesus was sinless, but somehow what Jesus and who Jesus was they were attracted to him, yet those who were most religious were repelled by him. It's an odd thing that's happening here. And the Pharisees and the tax collectors, they're grumbling. If we read this at a cursory level, it could sound like, well, he just received them, kind of like this little moment, but it's, it's not. It's receiving them is this important word 
it should conjure up in your mind when it says that Jesus receives sinners and he eats with them, it should conjure in your mind a search and rescue mission that you think about somebody who is lost, not through fault of their own or perhaps through fault of their own, irrespective of how they've become lost, they're positionally lost. They can't find their way to home, whatever it happens to be. And so there's an exhaustive search and rescue mission that has been sent out looking for them. And one day, everyone say one day, they're found. And in that moment, there is a collective exhale and they are received because they are, were once lost and in a moment, they've become found. This is the language of the scripture and it's why the Pharisees and tax collectors are grumbling so much because there they are and here Jesus is receiving people in a way that is absolutely blowing their mind. Receives, again, it describes this desired heart of Jesus towards anyone who was lost. John chapter 1, verse 12 says this, and here's the word you're going to hear it again. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. So to all who now received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave them the right he gave them the positional right, the legal right to become children of God. And so in the first part of the story, we see Jesus receiving others. And then John says, no, no, no. If you can receive, because the scriptures actually say, if you and I go searching for God, guess what? We're going to find him. That there are people today who are searching for truth. And we pray as the church that they may be looking for truth in a million different places, but truth isn't just a something, it's a someone. And when someone is searching truth, you can better believe that they are being led by the Holy Spirit to a fork in the road where they're going to see Jesus. They're going to come face to face with who Jesus is. I love how J.I. Packer says this. And it answers the question, why does Jesus eat with those who are so unlike him? Why are they drawn to him when he is so different from them? And he says this, that adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. One day, to show us how all of this fits together, Jesus told three stories. And the first is in Luke 15, verses 4 to 7. He says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one who is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. And so there's this beautiful, beautiful marriage in Scripture that you can see that any time somebody is received by God, there should be the next thing should be rejoicing by the community. And so we watch a story like we did today. When someone receives God or is received by God, the next thing that we do is that we rejoice. And this is what we see here. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And Jesus said this. He didn't say rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was wrong. 
said, rejoice with me because I found my sheep that was lost. Doesn't tell us why the little sheep wandered, only that it did. And how many of you know there's lots of different reasons why people wander today? But the beautiful thing of the story is no matter that we wander, our great shepherd is always looking for us. He's always coming for us. He's always on the lookout for us. And so Jesus tells us once again, the primary issue here is not the dumb sheep who wandered and finding out all the reasons why. And that's important. That's a part of the conversation. But the first priority is what? It is positional. Get the sheep home. And once the sheep is home, then we can work out the other stuff. But until the sheep is home, we're not having the right conversation. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, what is Jesus saying here? There are no 99 people who don't need repentance. All 100 need repentance. The scripture in Romans chapter 3 says there's no distinction. Every one of us is unrighteous. Every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There aren't 99 sheep who are righteous. Who's he talking to here in this moment? He's talking to the Pharisees in this moment who believe that they are righteous, but they are self-righteous, not saved and righteous. Their self-righteous doesn't make them positionally right with God. They are still lost. They are unaware of it. Whereas the tax collectors and sinners in this story who have wandered know that they are lost and that they have been brought back home. And I love the heart of the gospel here because it says that what the shepherd does when he finds the sheep is he places it on his shoulders and he carries it home. Oh, loved ones, the gospel is never what we do. The gospel is always first what Jesus does. That Jesus carries us home. That in order for you and I to be saved, we simply need to surrender and to trust in the saving grace and work of Christ on the cross for us. Again, what breaks Jesus' heart is people who need no repentance, who do not believe that they're lost. And again, for Jesus, lost is understood not just by their perspective, but by their position. Genesis chapter 3. Sin made us positionally lost. What did we lose? Everything that was good in Genesis 1-2 is impacted and affected. One of the problems with the way in which we tell the gospel today is for many of us, your Bible incorrectly starts in Genesis chapter 3, not Genesis chapter 1. So you tell your friends and family members it could start like this. Hey, let me tell you what's wrong with you. Rather than starting with, hey, let me tell you who God is and how good God is and what we've lost and what God is desiring to restore and renew. Not many people are moved in their hearts with, hey, can I talk to you for a few minutes of what's right with me and wrong with you? When the truth is, it should be a story of, hey, let me tell you how all of us are lost and how every one of us, including me and you, can be found 
if we have the courage enough to admit that we're lost. Jesus then tells a different story about a lost coin, and this story has no wandering, but I want you to hear the hints of wounding in this story. Wounding? Yes, wounding. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, there it is again, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy between the angels of God over one sinner, again, who repents. Same, same ending to the story. Why do you use the word wounding here about a coin? Well, coins have everything to do with value. And if this woman, Jesus intentionally tells a story about a woman who has ten coins, and a woman in this culture, there's no mention of a husband here. In a patriarchal culture, she's vulnerable. She needs all ten of those coins every single one of them to survive, which is why her behavior makes sense. When she loses one, she frantically begins to look for it. And it's very, very clear that the woman's misplacement of the coin, that she loses it. How many of you know that sometimes we lose it on each other? And sometimes we're wounded in life by people who should have treated us differently, don't. People who should have cared for us, didn't. People who should have valued us, devalued us in some way. And this is a story here that has profound implications for every one of us in our brokenness, and it is this. Though you are lost to the owner of the coin, in this story, the woman, the lost coin never loses its value just because it is lost. Oh, come on. How many people today have been wounded and broken and find themselves on the other side of life that need to hear that according to the God of heaven, they have not lost one ounce of their value to him. That in our woundedness, we can see others as better than um, us or better than or more this or more that, but according to God, no, no, no. Even though we're lost, we still have the utmost of value. And then Jesus tells a longer story that we don't have time to read today, but it's a story about a father and his two lost sons. In all three stories, the position of being lost is identical, though the circumstances are different. How many of you know that there's more than one way to become lost? Yeah. The sheep becomes lost by wandering. The coin is lost by wounding. Someone should have taken greater care, but again, lost never loses value. In Luke chapter 15, the story is about a younger son who becomes lost by rebellion, classic rebellion, pushing against the father, pushing against the love of the father, self-defining, you know, pushing, 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 taking, belligerent behavior, just classic rebellion story. 
self-centeredness, not caring about others, caring only about yourself, squandering, just a classic story of rebellion. But if we had time, I would take you in that story to be able to say that though the son, this younger son does everything wrong, the father still, his position is looking and searching and praying and wanting. Why? Because the father is always looking for a moment to receive the younger son back. And as Jesus tells the story, though, there's also an older son who doesn't have a classic story of rebellion. In fact, the older son never leaves the house. And here's what's terrifying as Jesus tells the story to the children of Israel listening. He essentially says, is you can be out of the house and lost or you can be lost in the house. Because the older son, if you actually read Luke chapter 15, is lost in a way that he can't see. How does the older son become lost? Because of the actions of his younger brother and then the actions of the father, the older son is upset. And here's why. Because if you know the story, the younger son says to the father, give me my share of the inheritance. And the father does. And then when the younger son comes home, the younger son says, I'm not even worthy. I'm not worthy. I am not worthy to be your son. And he is speaking words that are true. But aren't you glad that the father doesn't define our relationship based on our perspective, but by his position? And the father says, though you are not worthy, I have all authority. In other words, what you're feeling is true, but it's not necessarily truth. There is a greater truth than what you feel. Yes, you are and have behaved unworthy. This is true, but what is greater is my love for you is greater than what you've done, and I have the authority to restore you. And so he's restored to the family. And as he's restored to the family, guess whose inheritance just got cut in half again? His brother. And so what happens to the brother the brother can't see anymore. He can't see the story of lost and found because he's caught in right and wrong. And he can't see the heart of love over the injustice of what is. And the father never negates the injustice. But this younger, this older son becomes lost through self-righteousness you read the story, he essentially says this, I'm not as bad as my brother. No, you may not be as bad as the worst sinner on the planet. Granted. But the very presence of sin, any sin, renders us positionally lost between a God who is holy. It is true. There are some sinners who sin worse than you. How many of you know that all sin separates us from God, but not all sin has identical earthly consequences? We get this. And so today, perhaps you've wandered 
No intention of becoming lost, but you've become lost. Allow Jesus, the great shepherd, to carry you home. Like a lost coin, the way you were treated or not treated perhaps has made it difficult for you to see God as good. But I need you to hear, knowing that may be there in your life, no matter what has happened to you, you've never lost an ounce of your value to God. You may be, or may have, or may be purposely rebelling, believe horrible things about God, living a self-centered life. But I want you to know this, whether that it was your state when God found you or whether that is your state right now. Whatever you do, it will never change the Father's looking for you. And you are always one step towards seeing your Father running full tilt towards you. One thing Jewish patriarchs did not do, run towards their kids. Their kids come to them. Not in the story of Jesus. Why? Because our God receives sinners and tax collectors. This is his heart. Together, let's not be the older brother defining our being found on the basis that we are better than others. It seems as though the position of Jesus is always rescue, receive, and then rejoice. And so the question is, if that's the position of Jesus, what's our step? Well, we read it three times. I just didn't highlight it. Jesus said three times, it's a single word, repentance. Repentance means I'm just turning from something, but I'm turning to Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, I'm going to say this again and again and again. Following Jesus may start with a prayer, yes. But the ultimate heart in following Jesus is to see your life transformed to look more like Jesus. Jesus said he's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. I love that Jesus said that he's a way. He's a direction in which we live. And here's what is true. You cannot simultaneously live into two different directions, only one. Jesus is a way, not just a prayer. Yes, it may start with a prayer, but it needs to move from there, not from an earning place, from a transformation place. Psalm 145, verse 18 says, The Lord is near to all to call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And the truth is, every one of us, positionally outside of Christ, is lost. Let that sink in for a minute. Every one of us, outside of the redemptive work of Christ, is lost. 
So when I ask a question like, what's wrong with the world? If your answer to what is wrong with the world and immediately you thought of a them or a they, be careful because that's precisely the thinking of the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees believed that everybody should become like them. And Jesus came and said, no, everybody has to become more like me. And that starts first, church, with positionally understanding that outside of Christ, we're lost. In our world today, we love, we love the answer to this question, to be a them. What's wrong with the world today? I tell you what's wrong with the world today. Conservatives, liberals, new Democrats, Green Party, People's Party of Canada, those Canadians who don't vote. I tell you what the real problem is, conservative Christians. I'll tell you what the problem is, people who are LGBTQ. I'll tell you what the problem is. Ethnicity. Everything divides. In our world today, the answer to this question, if you pay attention to it, is always division. It always first labels, then it divides. God looks at chaos and he brings order. Satan sees order and he brings chaos. Ask yourself what spirit is at work within Canada. Let's end here with a bit of humility. If you've been found by Jesus, amen. But let's be humble, church, because how many of you know that we can be found by Jesus and in life still get lots of lot of still get lots of things wrong? Like just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean I have everything figured out. So oh, that the church would be baptized afresh in humility, and you can equally be eternally lost, but get some other things right. And so Jesus would say, this is the problem that we face today. The problem is lost people trying everything except Jesus to become found people. This is the problem. And it's literally killing us. And it can equally be a problem that found people try everything except Jesus to become more like Jesus. This is a problem too. How do we fix it? Number one, admit you can't. Number two, invite the only one who can to do what only he can do. I'm going to invite you to stand. Because the truth is,
Whether today you're lost or whether you're found, here's all I know. Just as it was when Jesus told the story. The sinners and the tax collectors who he was receiving and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, guess who they all needed? They all needed Jesus. So it is so true today. Whether you're lost or you're found, we all need to be more like Jesus. Because after all, this is his house we're living in. And I'm not talking about these four walls. I'm talking about this fear that we're breathing air on. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Lord, would you build your house? Put your hands out in front of you like this, and I'd be honored to pray. For some of you, this can be a prayer that can change your life. We're going to pray a very simple prayer. Together, let's say, Dear Jesus, my sin is what is wrong in the world. Your grace is what is right. So I surrender afresh today. Carry me home. Amen. If you're here today, in front of you is a Connect card. If you've given your life to Christ for the very first time, you can raise your hand online or you can let us know. We'd love to follow up. You can go to connect.lifecenter.lord. Wow, that'd be quite a website. (laughs) Connect.lifecenter.org. And uh, that would be a cool domain, by the way, but it'd be sacrilegious. But if you could, you could do it there. If you're online, go to connect.lifecenter.org. If you're in the house, there's cards in front of you you can identify. And then on your way out, you can also drop your neighborhood card where you wrote your neighborhood down. Just place that in the basket if you could. And then lastly, if you're here today and you would like ministry for anything, anything, giving your life to Jesus, becoming more like Jesus. You're going through hard, anything whatsoever, as we are dismissed from the back to the front as the ushers do so for in person, uh, you can simply remain in your seat, let people go by you, remain in your seat, and our prayer team will come to you. If you're online, you can just identify if you're on the live.lifecenter.org, identify that you want prayer, and we'd love to pray for you online. May Jesus bless you, and may he keep you, and may this week, may he receive you in a way that absolutely blows you blows your heart and mind because his love is truly out of this world.